Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Uh, We have with us a guest, Adam Letterer. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. I don't know if there's like a French... Yeah, that was really good. Great, great. (laughs) Um, Quick question. Is it like a French name or not? No, I think there was a French company that sounds more sophisticated, but I'm just from like standard Eastern European Jewish stock. So any place that has like smelly soups, that's where I'm from. Oh, okay. Okay, cool, cool. So yeah, if you don't mind telling the people uh, who you are and where they can find you and um, what you do. Yeah, so I am a writer and a producer. Uh, I'm currently writing for a show on Netflix. It's a new animated show that should come out. Actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to say when it comes out, but but it will come out at some point in the near future. Um, and uh, you can find me at uh, just my name, Adam Letter, with an underscore at the end of it uh, on Twitter. And I think it's just Adam Letter on Clubhouse, and that's where uh, T and I met. Actually, I don't know. Should I call you Trevor or T? What do you? You, what can, do you, call me, you can call me either one. What, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay, cool. One. That's that's okay. Um, you know, it's funny. You're one of the few uh, people who actually does uh, productive rooms on uh, and constructive rooms on Clubhouse. I feel like. <laughs> You've been there longer than me. I feel like the, the signal to noise ratio is pretty awful on there now. Like it wasn't that rare to find a constructive room when I first got on Clubhouse, so it wasn't that uh, hard to um, make your acquaintance. Plus, we both know uh, Gabriella, who's like a, a a friend of the show, and that's how we met. But nowadays, it's the signal to noise ratio is is awful. But it's um, there's still some good discussions on there. I feel like I'm down on it a lot, and I don't want to make people think you know it's a total hellhole. But no, it's not. There's still like a lot of good discussion on there and stuff. But there's just a lot of Elon Musk. I wonder though, like. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder, like, when did you get on it? Like, what era, like, what month? Do, um, do I you got remember on, that? I think, uh, late November. Okay, because I sort of wonder if this is, like, the natural progression of the way, like, social media apps work in real time, which is, like, there's sort of a curve where right before it gets saturated, where, like, the online marketing people find it and business coaches. Mm-hmm. And so we just sort of hit that exact moment. Like, it's weird seeing it because we're now at, like, this sort of late stage tech 2.0 where, we like, we know how these social media companies actually function. So I think you're right. Like, there definitely are still interesting rooms of people. But I wonder if, like, either one of us had got on later than when we did, if we would just be immediately sort of disenchanted with it. And you know what's kind of weird is that I've feel like the life cycle of what's happening with clubhouse is very predictable every social media app has a saturation point but this is the fastest i've ever seen it like i feel like i saw two (laughs) years worth of twitter decline in two months like like twitter had a good like two years of being pretty fun before you realize okay this is getting kind of toxic and i mean it's a slightly different crowd that i think ruined twitter i feel like it's the it's the LinkedIn pipeline, right? Yeah, exactly. It's someone. It's like LinkedIn meets. I forgot how somebody put it, but someone put it really well. It said the worst parts of Twitter meets the worst parts of LinkedIn, um, which, which I thought was a great, great way to put it. And then there was a third uh, ingredient. It'll 
it'll come it'll come to me it wasn't like one of those like conferences it was like davos or one of those things like i vaguely remember something along those lines or like ted talks yeah yeah there's a there's definitely there's definitely a big uh ted talks ted talks vibe vibe to it there's definitely a big ted, ted talks vibe to it um the worst parts of twitter part i think is coming because a lot of the a lot of the um social justice types now have have kind of this discovered it kind of discovered it as well which doesn't which doesn't help because they're having a lot of triggering and trauma and violence conversations on there and kind of um bullying people and everything and and that part's kind of kind of nasty too but you still have good rooms in there uh you had one recently oh well i appreciate yeah. that yeah because i was worried that even the good rooms would start getting overrun by like the bad people but i think yours are so smart that they just naturally filter like i see people pop into your room sometimes that people i know are trolly and then just kind of leave because i just think that there's nothing for them to sink their teeth in too as far as drama like a very drama free smart rooms <laughs> Yeah, I'm not very messy, I guess. I mean, also, I think part of it is like, you know, you were talking before about the idea that there's like sort of meta rooms that pop up that are direct comments on other rooms. Yeah. And I feel like it's almost like this false red pill, blue pill thing that happens where it's like you don't actually have to engage in that stuff. It's just like people think that there's this binary choice. And if you don't sort of like feed the red meat where you don't name a room something that is like specifically supposed to be provocative, it generally doesn't attract those people anyway. And I also find like, you know, the one thing I would say that Clubhouse has going for it as opposed to Twitter is like, I think audio and just voice sort of lends a certain level of like nuance. And you can kind of, you can have an opinion, take in new information and then change your opinion and sort of evolve in real time. Whereas with text, it's like, it's almost like a tattoo or something or like, you know, the internet's written in pen. So you don't have the ability, you just have to triple down because you can't admit defeat in that same way. Yeah, yeah. And also I remembered what the third part was. It was uh, worst parts of Twitter combined with the most insufferable parts of linkedin with the worst parts of south by southwest there's a lot of south right. by southwest <laughs> going on yes too. yeah it's like that like it's like burning man but your job is as like a futurist in some tech company yeah exactly a lot of silicon valley wackos and the scammiest rooms will be any room with rockets in the title the more rockets in the <laughs> title of the room you know it's gonna be it's just like pure bullshit uh unless you're on clubhouse you won't really know how accurate uh <laughs> that critique is i mean it is it's like that and like money back oh, or whatever yeah, it's that too it's just that too i mean <laughs> i mean as, as usual like for patrons um what we've been doing is we've been giving patrons invites to um clubhouse and it's kind of weird because we were giving out the invites when I first got on there and I was really kind of excited about, oh, this is a great space for a constructive conversation. And I don't want to deter people too much. If you want, if you want the invites, you know, go to our discord and ask us, we'll still give it. There are still good spaces and pockets in there. Don't, don't let us, you know, deter you, but I just tell people to just, we can't let them win. Can't right? let them win. Exactly. Exactly. Just get ready to fish around a little bit. You know, don't, don't, don't expect it to jump <laughs> out at you. Like, you know, it probably did when, when Adam and I uh, joined. When did you join? So I think my friend Alexis, who's like kind of a, I guess she's like, she worked at Patreon and then she kind of blew up as like a comedian, but kind of through that audience. And she invited me to give a talk with her in like maybe late May. I mean, time is really hard to track at this point, not just because of COVID, but like I live in Los Angeles where it's like basically the same weather all the time. So I think it, I think it was last May and I got on there and it was weird because, you know, I had no idea how many active users they had at that point, but like you'd go on in the middle of the day and for like hours, there would be no rooms. 
Like literally, it was as if uh, no one used the app at all. So to see it kind of blow up in the way that it has is fascinating. And also like, it's really interesting because early on in the app, the sort of like meta discourse, because it's also, you know, early on in any social media life cycle, or really just the entire time, it's like a lot of meta discourse about the app itself. And it was sort of about how there are too many Silicon Valley people and too many like think boys or whatever. And now it's like, there's too many people trying to like, uh, buy your blood and trade it for forex. <laughs> like it's changed into like this totally different thing. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating. I mean, I think one thing that definitely changed the app a lot was uh, black people. There's a lot of black people on the app now, and I think they made it pretty hot. To be honest, like I think they made the app pretty pretty good in that sense. But then I think it just I don't know how to put this. Like the the tech rooms are super boring. Those guys are just total yes. snoozers they are the most boring people on earth i was really shocked when i found out <laughs> just how boring they were like i'm not saying that at any point in my life i thought tech people were exciting but i was not ready for them to be this boring but um uh, when the black <laughs> no can we just stop on yeah, that one second because that is it, it's very rare to be in an app where you're hearing sort of like your overlord speaking like in this way we're like these are the motherfuckers that control everything and they're so Dry. they're so bloodless they're so yeah, exactly completely bloodless and it's one of those things where you know like a good bad guy is like charismatic and has a plan and it seems with these people like the idea is to sort of bore you to death so they can then like harvest your data like it's unbelievable the lack of charisma that these people have and I don't think they even have really interesting master plan i think they just want to steal your data because they're like this will come in handy someday and it's the only thing we know how to do reliably <laughs> you know so a lot of it is like castles in the sky of all the stuff they can do but so much of it is bullshit like for example everyone's so scared of those self-driving cars i think they're really exaggerated and i think they are not anywhere close to being ready for prime time as they like to pretend so there's a lot of scaring and everything but i mean i i rode in a self-driving car and there were two guys needed to um, monitor it so it's actually needed more people a regular car so i'm like why do we even need like this two people and and i get what they're gonna say they're gonna say we need this because we're still uh tweaking the ai and we need the people there to help us but i don't believe that because okay those captures um i don't know if this is common knowledge or not because i only just found out so when i just find out something i think that it's uh you know uncommon knowledge and i find out everybody in the mother knew it but you know those captures when it tells you to uh click the fire hydrant or where's the crosswalk or or like stop sign or yeah. whatever, yeah. Um, I don't know how many people know this. I only found this out recently, but all those are trying to use input from real people to program self-driving car AI. So they, it's a huge free labor project where we're all helping create and perfect the self-driving car AI, supposedly, when we keep doing those um, capture tests and saying, where's the bridge and where's that? I was thinking if that's the case, those captures have been around so many years. They probably have... So so many pieces of data on that thing. The fact that there still needs to be two human beings to man that thing makes me think that uh, they're just collecting that like, crazy data and they can't get it to actually come close to working. <laughs> I mean, the idea of it's like, you know, how many people does it take to drive a self-driving car? And it's three. It's like, it's, fucking, it's crazy. I mean, the other side of it too is just like, 
on a very practical level, like our infrastructure is not actually built for the innovation that we have. So like we have a very practical sort of like 20th century problem to solve before we can kind of get to this cutting edge technology. But it is like, you know, to the earlier point about these guys being very boring. It's like, again, you think like sci-fi villain, master plan, and instead it's just a bunch of dumbasses hitting like, this is not a stop sign in your captcha. It's like, it's so much more mundane than you would ever anticipate. And I was thinking too, like, uh, you never hear a lot about gold diggers and stuff talking about, you know, I got land me tech bro or something, you know, like a lot of gold diggers still brag <laughs> about their finance dudes or their like, you know, old exec or something. And I was thinking like, there's so many tech bros out there making tons of money for doing nothing and stuff. You would think people would want to uh, land themselves if I was like a gold digger or one of those things or a sugar baby. I would, I'd want to get a tech bro. But then when I got to clubhouse i realized like wow this is not worth the money like i could see somebody trying to uh bag themselves like a tech pro it's like oh it's not worth it this is just too painful the conversation when they try to be funny yeah you, they're, you really worse. they're worse when they try to be funny yeah i feel like there's also this like curve of like what's considered to be funny for a tech person where it's like oh actually i like you know i'm someone who does like memes about robin hood or whatever where it is like the lowest common denominator but because it sort of like remotely resembles the rhythm of someone who is funny it gets like that kind of knowing chuckle but it is like you never you never hear anybody be like i've got to bag someone who's like options are about to vest in facebook <laughs> like that's just never part of the culture uh, they do try to flirt sometimes i've seen like the tech bro like shoot your shot rooms and they are just painful and you know that's, that's interesting too i thought it was just kind of like male kind of thing but uh female i don't know if you call them female tech bros or texas i don't know what you call them but uh yeah the <laughs> girls are kind of dry too in 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 tech yeah, I think there's something going on where, you know, I've heard, I've listened to a couple of the older podcasts you've talked about, and there was this almost um, conflation of dating and workplace and marketing yourself. And I think those rooms in some way have nothing to do with dating. Mm. They're almost this public facing way to show it's like, here's how I can show my resume as a growth hacker is by how many people I can get into your shoot your shot room. And then also, I was thinking about this where it's like, if you do meet someone on Clubhouse, you go to date, it doesn't work out well, and you want to remain on Clubhouse, you now just have to see that person everywhere. They probably just blocked them. <laughs> I feel like I feel like that probably happened. <laughs> yeah, that's Especially right. because it seems like on Clubhouse, you can't see who blocks you. You kind of have to infer it. So uh, I still don't know how that works. Like, what is the actual mechanism for blocking on Clubhouse? Well, okay. On Twitter, if somebody blocks you, if you click their profile, it'll say block. But from what I've been told on Clubhouse, you can have one of your followers block you. Or you can block somebody. This is what I've been told because it's not very clear. It's kind of opaque. And you won't know. You got to kind of piece it together from rooms you're getting kicked out of. Like For example, if somebody um, blocks you, right? If they're in the speaker section, you apparently can't join the room. This is what we've been trying to piece together. But also, if you're in a room and then they join the room and then one of them gets on the stage, suddenly you're kicked out of the room. <laughs> but you won't know just getting slingshotted around that's amazing yeah, and 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 you won't it won't show up in your lobby if somebody in your uh who's blocked you somebody has been blocked on clubhouse i'm not sure who basically there'll, there'll be rooms that um if you see if you see someone's name you know that part of clubhouse where you see people's names it has like the scarlet letter it's like an exclamation point right? uh, oh no that's that's something different that's if a lot of people you know uh, you follow have blocked this person it lets you know a lot of your friends hate this person and so we think you might hate them too but no, no this is something different oh you know okay. when there's a list of people online and what room they're in they're in and you could join them in that yes. room 
like you see your friends in a, in a room, right? And then when you try to join the room they're in, it'll say, sorry, this room is already over. Your friend's name will be in that room forever. That means that somebody who blocked you is in that room. And so Clubhouse tells you the room is over when it's uh, not. And the room and the oh room won't show up in your lobby. So see, this is the thing. It's like, I should, I should actually know all this information at this point, but I'm so, I know like my spidey sense is like tingle so much on Clubhouse where I know what rooms are going to like result in someone either blocking me or me wanting to block them that I just sort of like have it on rails. But every once in a while, I will sort of like see the equivalent of like a scarlet letter next to someone's yeah. name. And it's this weird, it's this weird thing where you'll, it's like you'll talk to somebody and they'll seem like relatively normal. And then you see that scarlet letter and you're like, what did this person <laughs> say? And so you end up, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like this weird thing where I'm like, well, is everyone else, is the world gone crazy or is this person secretly horrible? And so you're just sort of left in this weird, it's very dystopian. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. And uh, actually, I don't want to talk about it too much because it's very inside baseball. But uh, yes, exactly. We should get yeah, into something yeah, else. Yeah, even though... Uh, I think it is. I think it is interesting. I think people should check it out at least once because it's a weird place. And also, I use this word a lot. I get made fun of for abusing this word, but this is one of the few times that I think the word is actually literally appropriate. The growth on there literally is exponential, as in like it's like quadrupling. It's like multiple times bigger. Like you said, it was empty when you used to come in. When I used to come in, it was so-so. Like those always rooms, but you could run out of rooms easy. And now there's easily millions upon millions of people there and a lot of my normie friends like my super normie friends who do not like social media keep popping up my thing like um you know your aunt is on i was like what really like i don't know that i don't know if you've been having that experience but a lot of (laughs) oh i've been having it with like old tinder dates like somebody i was like oh i went out with her like six years ago in new york and then they pop up and i'm like okay this is a whole thing i gotta deal with now yeah anybody who's still left over in your phone book it'll notify you yes crazy thing yeah so so <laughs> i think it's only gonna keep changing so i think if anybody wants to try it try it try it now because who knows what's gonna be like in a, in a month are exactly what we're gonna talk about because there's so much stuff it has to do with entertainment and content and the glut of everything but i feel like every week some new stuff pops up and i'm not even sure what is the most recent thing that we should talk about like the martin scorsese content thing i thought was one interesting thing and then can we talk about the punky brewster thing that you sent me like an hour ago maybe? yes yes and and actually and actually you know what <laughs> i have a cool little feature on here where i can actually play i can actually pipe it directly in here and you can hear it so, so let me just put it back in here so you can have it yeah you guys all have to suffer what we yeah yeah exactly exactly you can live through it a second time <laughs> but yeah they have soleil moonfry and uh, first off i gotta say this is the thing i'm wondering right like uh i'm older i'm gen x i remember punky brewster but it was on for like two seasons had a cartoon and it burned hot and it burned bright and it burnt out fast like like it was one of those shows like v uh where it was like, the hottest thing uh, one season and then the second season it just got canceled and you're like wait how did this even happen I remember Punky Brewster maybe I'm wrong maybe it was a couple years but I don't think Punky Brewster had this kind of following that anybody would want to reboot it and I want to know if I can assure you it doesn't <laughs> it's here's here's what's going on because this is actually maybe an interesting segue into sort of just like how you think about like the media landscape or how we can sort of like digest this because So Punky Brewster for me, I was born in 1991. So I think it was probably off the air by the time I was even born. But I knew it's like suddenly seeking Susan. You're like, I kind of know what that is. And I've heard it referenced. It almost feels like a 30 Rock bit. Like 
I'm like, okay, cool. And then I looked up the, what the like synopsis of the show is. And this is, this is the synopsis. And tell me if this is maybe how you remember it. Punky Brewster is a child who's been abandoned by her parents. Taken in by crusty Chicago photographer, Henry Warnamont, uh, Punky and her dog Brandon teach Henry how to lighten up. Sheree and Alan are two of Punky's friends. The titular character is named uh, for a girl, former NBC executive, Brandon Tartikoff, remembered from his childhood. Mm, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. I'm looking here and it says it was on four years. So I'm surprised. I had no idea it was a four season show, but that kind of shows how forgettable <laughs> it was. Like, I, I remember it came on Sundays. Everybody watched it when it first came out and she had two different color shoes because Punky was supposed to be like, she's like punk rock. She's like a street kid. So she, I guess the idea with street kid is you have two different color shoes. That's what, that's what, that's punk rock. Cause it was, it wow. was like, the more things change, the more they say the yeah, same. Yeah, basically. Cause uh, one thing about the eighties for people who didn't live through it, there were two things and it's different than now. Like now people, one thing I will say about corporate network culture now, I think cause everything is kind of flattened and there is no real underground. Like I think even hipsters aren't underground anymore. Now hipsters just enjoy mainstream things, but act like they're enjoying it either a ironically or they act like they're enjoying it. Uh, B on an elevated level. Like, oh, yeah, I'm uh, watching The Bachelor, but I'm uh, going to do a think piece that overthinks it, you know, and, you know, does like, <laughs> sociological stuff about The Bachelor. Or I'm going to act like I'm watching it tongue-in-cheek, you know. So I think because of that, like, trends and memes and all these things, TV shows and network shows and mainstream culture can adapt it and adapt it pretty accurately and quickly, like, surprisingly fast. Like, TV shows will have a season feeding off of Twitter topics and sound like Twitter, like, you know, for better or worse. I think it's for worse, but it does sound accurately like Twitter. But in the 80s, it used to be that the networks would chase the underground and always really butcher it. It'd always be like a year or two or five years too late. And it would be like a bad caricature. Like if you ever see like hip hop network TV or in old movies, there's like really bad graffiti, a multiracial gang and bad, bad scratching. <laughs> You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, the rap would be bad. Like, a hip to the hop. Now he's a cop. You know, it would just be, like, just awful. You know, everyone would laugh at it. You know, and punk. the two things were hip-hop and punk rock. Those were the two things that there was a very network TV way to portray them. And it was always really bad to anybody who knew anything about those cultures. Always, like, a cheesy mohawk or some torn, sleeveless denim thing, you know, and a bunch of wristbands. And... And the, the, for the hip hop, there was like some, some high tops and a little bit of bad break dancing and, you know, scratching. It was, it was always like really bad. And Punky Brewster was that 80s version of uh, what olds thought punk was, you know, and it was it was pretty bad. And I, I think they kind of even dropped the kind of punk angle like a season or two in. She just kind of became a regular girl, but like she had two different color shoes. I mean, it's not a great sign when a character is named after someone that like an executive vaguely remembers from childhood. I have to say, yeah. this is like, never, great art is generally not made from like the fumes of a thing that somebody in a tall building is thinking about. And so it's sort of interesting because this, the thing that you sent me, it was almost made specifically for, it wasn't even like an ad. It was like supposed to be in Twitter, right? Like it's supposed to be specifically like a tweet uh, showing you around the house. Yeah, yeah. Of, or I guess the set and, of Punky and, and real quick, I don't think, Punky was named after one of Brandon Tartikoff's friends, right? I think it was just her her friends were. Because I think Punky was meant to um, capitalize on punk rock. So 
That'd be crazy if he had a friend called Punky uh, growing up. It says the titular character, but also like at oh, that she point, was called, like, so she was. Uh, named, he had a friend called Punky as well. It sounds like the name of maybe like that Mad Men era thing, where it's like Peggy or something. Oh. You know, it's got that sort of colloquial thing. But I mean, her real name was Penelope. I don't know. I didn't so maybe show. his real life friend was Penelope because Punky wasn't her birth name. Like her parents didn't name her Punky. She that was just her nickname because she was so punk. You know. Yeah, that's to let you know. I mean, so, I, so, so maybe the Penelope of, part is what his childhood friend was named. It's so funny to me because, like, watching the watching that clip and having no context of the show, it feels like they made no... Like, what you're talking about earlier was, like, the ability to sort of update things for a modern sensibility, and it feels a little off, but at least it's in conversation with, like, the way that the world is moving. This felt to me like a, a one-to-one reboot. It, it almost felt as if they didn't understand that any time. Yep, passed. yep. Uh, tell me if you can hear this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna play. Hold on one second. I'm gonna play it right now. Hey everyone, it's Soleil, and I am here I on the set of our Punky Brewster reboot. I'm so excited to give you a tour. Here we are in our living room, which of course does it look familiar? A little different but still so much of the heart of the original. Here we are. And one of my favorite, favorite parts. Oh, look who it is. I am now going to give you a sneak peek. I here's my here's my question. Who is this for? Like a genuine question. Is this for parents who want to show this to their kids and be like, this is what I grew up on? Yeah, I mean, basically everything they show so far. The reason I paused it was because everything's like, hey, recognize this. Hey, recognize that. Uh, and look who it is. And then they show a picture on the wall and it's of Henry because the actor is dead now. The one who played her adopted father and stuff. Oh, right, because no. uh, he's gone, so they have to just show a picture of him, and that's what that's all the thing is. I was wondering the same thing. Like people old enough to really be nostalgic for this show, they weren't like sitting around thinking about it. Like it didn't have that kind of cult following where, like, it was really hot, but hot because they promoted the hell out of it and it was like kind of popular but it wasn't like the kind of like hot show where when it went off the air people were writing letters and stuff or people have punky brewster conventions uh punky con you know or anything like that <laughs> so, so yeah it's like when i saw it i'm like oh yeah i kind of remember like, like, like to give a counter example like saved by the bell i think is a show that was successful beyond the marketing push like they weren't expecting it to be as big as it was and there's people who love love saved by the bell it's heavily syndicated yes. for years you know people talk about it do think pieces punky brewster was kind of out of sight out of mind like people watched it was a flash in the pan. It was kind of hot for a season. And I looked it up, and this is why I don't remember as many seasons as it has. I didn't know this. It got two seasons, which I remember. It got canceled by the network. Then it had two seasons in syndication, which uh, usually means pretty bad. Uh, when TV shows move from network to syndication, it was just hanging on to get 100 episodes and see if they could. And it got 88. So, yeah, I didn't even know about the syndicated uh, years and stuff but uh i mean the cast looks good i'll give it to them like uh the black girl looks exactly the same as she did when she was a kid i was really shocked she didn't really yeah you know it's sort of an interesting thing because i think for me one of the reasons why this resonated is like there's always a nightmare for me as a writer that like um you know i'm going through a divorce because my wife cheated on me with her tennis instructor and i have a kid at one of these like bougie la schools and i have to pay for like alimony and their like drug rehab or whatever so i've got to <laughs> do a show like this <laughs> Like, there's some weird, like, you know, that's the DMT that releases from my brain when I'm about to die. Like, that's my biggest fear. 
So when I see this, I actually have like um, a certain level of empathy because I'm like, well, as a writer or creative or actors, especially if you're on Punky Brewster, you didn't like break out afterwards. You're like, I just want to work and make a living. Peacock is willing to do this because they they'll try anything to get you to like go come to their new streaming service. And so it's this phenomenon that is going on right now, which is like, we just have to do intellectual property and mind nostalgia for whatever we, whatever we can do. And like the entire industry is like, well, if this is the only thing that I can get made or be a part of to make a living, I'm going to be a part of it. And so what it does is it results in you having to make super cringy Twitter videos promoting this like set with like a dead man inside of it. And, and also I think there's no incentive to create anything new. Like what's the point? I mean, forget about from the network's, example but what's the point of doing work for hire content mill where you do something too creative if you're not gonna really get ownership from it you know in your first deal i can kind of see why some people might want to be like oh well you know what let me save it for something that i can um make into my game of thrones or something you know like uh i'll just work now in other people's ip because i know that happened with comic books one reason why a lot of people don't want to create new stuff in comic books is like I don't want to become like Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or um, Chris Claremont where I make a bunch of IP for a company and then I'm not even getting royalties off of it. And they're eating off my wage work for like decades, making billions of dollars and I'm not even getting getting royalties. And then if I sue them, which happened like with Marv Wolfman and Blade and like other things, uh, not only will I lose, but then they're going to blackball me and I can't even get work for higher work. So I, I don't know if TV has a similar dynamic happening but i think i'm i almost have a more cynical view than that because that sort of assumes like um a top-down insight into like where the industry is going and sort of owning back end and all of that and i think for some of the upper level people that definitely is a part of it it's like why you want to sign an overall deal worth a lot of money versus like owning your ip outright because there's not the same syndication money that there would have been for a show like punky brewster but i think it really comes down to and i've been like relatively lucky in my career where it's like you really are at a certain point in your career, you're saying yes to whatever opportunity comes up because you want to get that first credit and you want to be able to sort of, you. the idea is like, oh, I can build on this, right? This is gets my foot in the door. It's a super competitive industry. But the problem is that like, you know, the path of good intentions or whatever, because you take this job and then it sets you up for other jobs that are like it. Or, you know, you become a victim of your success and the Punky Brewster show takes off and you're like, well... You know, I now have increased my lifestyle or whatever. Or the checks are pretty good. There's definitely worse jobs out there. And it sort of leads to this lowering of creative expectations. Mm. And then on top of it all, the industry, it's not like it's rewarding you. I mean, there, there are some people who can kind of do anything at this point if they sign those big overall deals. But I would say for most people, um, you know, it's like <laughs> you, I was watching the Tiger Woods doc and someone was like, well, you're only as faithful as your opportunities or whatever. And I think for some people, integrity is very... Uh, sort of contextual based on what com- mm, comes about. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, you know what? Let's play a little more of this thing uh, because because it gets Please. it gets it gets worse. You can't see the visuals of it, but um, if you look it up, you can you'll see there's a peacock tweet that um, I'll try to put into the show notes, actually. But yeah, let's keep let's keep playing this this pain. Hold on. Uh, the kids room now. Do you see anything familiar that may remind you? of another little girl's kids room (laughs) i love it in here so much and uh it's one of my favorite rooms in the apartment yeah so 
I mean, I mean, basically, it's just showing rooms in the set. The set is the old set from the old Punky Brewster. And what's funny is she's saying, as someone who watched the first two seasons of Punky Brewster, what she keeps saying is, remember this room? And, and I watched the first two seasons, and I was like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> and I think they even kind of know, realistically, that nobody cared about it enough to memorize the set. It wasn't like the Kramer set. So it wasn't like the Seinfeld set. Like people can recognize the Seinfeld set instantly or the Jefferson set. Yes. People didn't have that kind of emotional attachment to Punky Brewster as far as I know. So Zeman said, 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 does this look familiar to you? And then she's like pausing and she's smiling. And then they put a side by side just to really drive home. And even with the side by side, I'm like, um, I guess, I guess that's the same set. You know, she goes, it's, it's, decorated, it's decorated a little different, but trust us, it's the same set. Remember this room? They're putting it side by side. It's like, God, you guys are really trying, but I don't think, but it kind of betrays that they even know that they're full of shit. Yeah, they're saying the quiet part loud. Like, usually when you do a reboot, it's like, look at all these hidden details, right? There's always that clickbait article that's like, did you notice this? But in this, it's like actually just right out in front where it's like, listen up, idiot. This is the same thing as this thing from the past. Aren't you pleased? Like, here's like, Here's something that I'm sort of wondering, which is like, did they, is there actually an audience for this? In which case, like, oh my God, like America has been fully lobotomized. Or is it that the M NBC execs and like the universal people are so condescending that they think there is an audience? I don't know which one is actually well, sad. One thing I think is happening here, right, is because it's Peacock, maybe what it needs to be successful is much lower. So maybe what they're kind of thinking is there's not an audience on the network level, but maybe on a niche level, there might be be um enough of a handful of people who will drag the kids into this and it may be like it'll catch on with the kids or something so i that's that's what i'm maybe thinking you know uh i think just want people to just get peacock whatever because all you need is one household member to get the peacock and then they have the whole family so they just need one person in the house and i guess maybe they hope once it's in your house you guys got peacock you're spending like four or five dollars a month or ten dollars i don't know what peacock costs then the rest of your friends will come in and see um ham sandwich magoo whatever other shows they have <laughs> they have on there and and um they'll they'll get you i i, I don't i don't know uh well it's interesting right because peacock is in this very strange place and this maybe gets to like some of the broader context around these streaming services which is you know you have the high level streaming services you have like a netflix uh amazon video which is like a part of prime and you have Disney Plus and HBO Max and Hulu, which is part of Disney Plus. And then you have this sort of like late to the game or not even necessarily late to the game because Peacock probably came out not that far after Disney Plus. But like these kind of mid-tier services where it's like Peacock, Tubi, Pluto TV, where a lot of them either purely have an advertising tier or they have an advertising tier and also um, a paid streaming part of it. And Peacock, I think, doesn't know quite what it wants to do yet because it does have both. Like when for for Movie Club on Clubhouse, I've watched like we did the Big Lebowski, and they like weirdly had that on there because I guess it's probably probably part of some deal with like Universal. And so it's this interesting thing where they actually do have some good quality content, and it's free to watch. And the ad load isn't that bad, but then you kind of need to show like Punky Brewster to be like counter programming with like Saved by the Bell to be like okay, this is the kind of thing that you might spend $5 on for your kids. And to your point, like, if your kid likes it so much or you like it so much and want your kid to watch it, like, it's maybe enough to justify buying the monthly pass so you can watch it without any ads. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I think. Because um, one thing about the streaming 
uh, services, and this is something that um, you could probably build on more, is that you can't really think of it the way you think of network TV, where like with network TV, the hope is, hey, this would get a lot of ratings. This would get millions of eyeballs. Whereas with a streaming service, you're just trying to get people to purchase the subscription to the thing. And I think a lot of these decisions that we're seeing are based on the concerns that change once your thoughts are more about getting buzz and getting people interested in subscribing more than it is about counting individual eyeballs. And that's something I know that's big with Netflix is that they keep changing um, what counts as a view to kind of pad the views. But really, at the end of the day, what they're bringing to the uh, shareholders is this time, This is how many more subscribers uh, we got. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about how changing from rating ratings to subscribers uh, is going to change things or has changed things. Yeah, I, I think about this all the time because I think, you know, to your point earlier about what network TV was, it's like the easiest way to understand a lot of these companies, I think, is just how they make money. So network TV wasn't really in the TV business. They were in the advertising business. And so the shows that you got were a function of the kinds of things that big brand advertisers would want to be put out in front of. And so it resulted in things like Punky Brewster that was like the facsimile of punk, but nothing that would make anyone feel unsafe to watch it like 7 p.m. on a Tuesday or whenever it came out. And I think what ended up happening is there was sort of this transition period with, you know, a company like HBO and, and Time Warner, where all of a sudden there were satellites in the air and you didn't have to have a network TV license to sort of broadcast your programming. And we moved over to this thing where, you know, not unlike the subscription model, it's like, if you pay this amount of month, you can get this sort of high quality content. And so it's the equivalent of like, you know, if you love the New Yorker or something, you, you pay uh, to get above that paywall. And what switched in the last, I would say, I don't know, I guess when Netflix switched to streaming, so probably around, you know, 2007, between 2010, whatever, is that essentially the metric for deciding what a hit was is based on reoccurring subscription revenue. So uh, something like Stranger Things, which, you know, might cost, I have no idea what the price tag is. Let's say that it costs, at this point, $200 million a season, which who the fuck knows. But let's say that's the case. That actually may be more valuable to you than a show that, you know, would even cost... I don't know, $800 million. It's like the idea that people would stick around for Stranger Things specifically uh, means that the value of a show like that is exponentially higher than just a normal movie that you would go see at a theater because it, it really means life or death for, for Netflix. And what you're seeing right now is the shows that are not sort of providing reoccurring subscription, uh, they're going away pretty quickly. So, you know, the type of show that used to run for like six seasons because there were syndication deals on network TV might only run for two or three. I mean, you see this, I remember pre-COVID, I was driving outside and do you remember that show, The OA? Uh, yeah, I watched one episode and that was good. But yeah, a lot of people love <laughs> yeah, that so show. The OA. That show has a very strong following among people who like it. Okay, so this is a, about that. So I was like, like LA traffic is bad anyway, but I was pulling out of like the Netflix lot and uh, there was like, it was an insane amount of traffic. Like I was probably sitting still in gridlock for like 45 minutes to an hour. And I finally got up to figure out why. And uh, there was a woman that was on a hunger strike for the OA because it had just been canceled outside of like Netflix uh, in the middle of the street holding like, you know, like a Gandhi style poster or whatever. Uh, so like that is the intensity of the fan base. And that is sort of like the callousness with which they cancel some of these shows. And so when you're sort of creating these things, you know, what it used to be is like, well, what's what's your six seasons in a movie? And now it's like, well, what's the three season sort of 
compelling arc that gets this thing done because at a certain point it's diminishing returns. And I think, you know, when it comes to like content, as you've kind of talked about the distinction between like content and art or like works is like, well, if ultimately the bottom line is sort of sustained subscription revenue, it's a little bit different than making one thing that has a meaningful cultural impact because it's a little harder to quantify, right? Like, you know, we talked a little bit, or I don't know if we talked about it yet, but the Martin Scorsese article and what he is basically railing against, and the irony is not lost in me that he, you know, made the Irishman at Netflix because no one else yeah. would pay for it. Uh, but he's, but what he's railing against is sort of a culture that no longer sort of takes the time to value any individual piece of art or understand the lineage where it came from. It's sort of just like once they've got you in, it's just plugging you with stuff to keep you to keep that subscription going, and it's sort of all of the power shifts to the platform and less to the content itself. And it's sort of an interesting thing because in some ways it's a chicken or the egg thing where it's like, well, is are the humans watching this thing or the culture watching it hive sort of dictating what the algorithm is doing or is the algorithm dictating what these humans are watching and who is responsible for sort of like the degradation of art that we are currently seeing, at least it's in my something opinion. interesting about this idea of, you know, who cares if anything has rewatch value, just keep spamming people with content is that a lot of the things that get the most watches on Netflix are like old shows that people like to rewatch, like Breaking Bad or Friends. Friends was like the most watched show on the platform. So there is to some degree evidence that caring about rewatchability and and you know it's staying with you um it should matter but i think for the reasons you said um it's a it's diminishing returns it's, it's not worth it i mean inexplicably to me oa apparently had that value i do not get how that thing was so uh i mean no offense to oa fans uh I had, the reason i watched it is i had a lot of friends yeah. that recommended it to me and then i watched the first episode and i said uh i'm good one of the first things that happened that turned me off i hate when there's somebody who's like clearly a douchebag but they're trying to convince you you're supposed to like them and forgive the douchebaggery and um, for example in the show veronica mars this character logan and he's a really douche you can tell the writers kind of like him and want you to find his douchiness charming and i'm like no i hate it if someone doesn't punch this guy in the face soon i'm not gonna keep watching Oway had a guy like that the guy that basically <laughs> tries to kill the main character he's just like this uh spoiled white frat bro, frat bro guy like in today's climate not the most sympathetic type of you know, because now with, with all this right. weakness, I would think people would hate him. But, you know, he's basically trying to sick a dog on an innocent girl. And then he's supposed to be just mis misunderstood. And <laughs> like, okay, you turned me off. Then my friend said, no, uh, no, jump. I was going to jump to the end. And there's a really cool uh, school shooting scene. And I went to that with the, with the dance. They just. Oh, yeah. This is the one that kind of went viral. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm like, uh, okay, now I'm really good. But. Surprisingly, like you said, people were doing <laughs> hunger strikes for the show. Like in some way or another, I think they tapped on a into a piece of art that resonated with people. Yeah, what is it like? There's a lid for every pot. I think that that show is for people that were way too into their high school theater department. <laughs> like that was always the vibe of like the demo that I saw. It's like you know the stagehand. It's like taking it very seriously. It's like we're crossing here, and it's it's one of those things where I, I think the difference is. You know, and I've talked about this a bit on Clubhouse, but this is a, a huge change from the way the industry previously worked, which is that a show like Breaking Bad or Friends or The Office, those shows are not owned by Netflix. They weren't the producers on the show. Netflix essentially bought those licensing deals. And so, you know, and stop me if this has been like a thing that's been like over discussed on the show, because I'm, I'm happy to jump to something else. But like the, the quick strokes of history here is that 
essentially around 2008, a lot of these networks and studios were sort of strapped for cash um, because the economy wasn't doing particularly well. And they sort of just gave their content for pennies on the dollar to Netflix because they didn't think that it was a real competitor. And so Netflix basically built up this, you know, huge audience on these sort of premium shows from all these other studios. And the studios sort of assumed that in the case of something like Breaking Bad, they're like, okay, well, if Breaking Bad goes on to Netflix in the middle of its run, which I think it did, uh, people will go back to AMC to watch the rest of the show. And they kind of did. But what they didn't realize that Netflix sort of had lock-in with that consumer where they valued Netflix itself over AMC as the producer of the content. They just thought it was a Netflix show. So by the time the studios and these networks sort of wise up to what was going on, it was too late. And so what Netflix realized was, well, when they figure out sort of how crazy successful this streaming thing is going to be, what they're going to do is want to charge, they're either going to take away the content or they're going to charge an insane amount. And there's like this... uh, I think the Chinese proverb is like uh, something that he said of like, it's easier to fish in muddy waters or you catch more fish in muddy waters. And that's basically what Netflix was doing for four or five years in building up this sort of uh, massive subscriber base. And then they did House of Cards, which was a massive hit for them. And that was their first real production that they were spending money on. And so they owned that from production to distribution. And once that happened, and once that became a massive success, and now we sort of take for granted that that was successful, but but at the time, who knew? And they were using data to sort of make that decision. It was like, well, we know that our audience likes Kevin Spacey movies, RIP, he's not dead, but effectively yeah. he's dead. Uh, and uh, we love, they love David Fincher movies, and they like the original UK House of Cards. It's like, okay, well, we're going to use better data to sort of like inform our decision making. That shows a massive hit, then they do Orange the New Black, and all of a sudden the studios now realize, like, oh, we're a little fucked here because basically we have, you know, these multi-year deals with some of our best content. They're now producing stuff oh, in-house. They can cut out the middlemans. Oh, real quick. Oh, go ahead. I feel like you breezed past that so quickly that the insanity of it. <laughs> um I want to unpack that and let the insanity of it um sink in because what he just described, right? Because because I know the story. They used big data. They were trying to figure out what can we do to make a hit. And that show, House of Cards, is totally created by by algorithm and 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 big data and machines, which is which is crazy. So so we uh, can you repeat that? Can you repeat that again? It's yeah. And so to sort of explain this, because I think it, and it depends where you are sort of at Netflix now, but basically they realized they had all this content from these other studios. So they saw like, oh, a lot of people seem to be watching The Usual Suspects and they seem to be watching like K-Packs or any of these other sort of Kevin Spacey movies. Uh, they seem to be watching these David Fincher movies that we've also licensed from other yes. studios. So, so, and they so, also- so real quick, it wasn't like they said, hey, here's the character. Who's the best actor for the role based on the nuances of the character or whatever? They said, whose movies seem to do um, the best? But I bet they also thought related to um, price they charge. I bet they did that too. They didn't say it in the article, but I bet they said, uh, you know, related. So for example, if, it was, if the number was Will Smith, they would have probably been like, oh, oh F that. <laughs> We're not paying Will Smith money. So I bet it was a combination of uh, whose movies do the best relative to um, cost. So basically he just got the role like just off of that, not off of some kind of... Well, I think... I might be wrong about this, but I think what happened is like the way this generally works in Hollywood, and it's starting to change a little bit because 
Netflix and Amazon and Disney are starting to become more like a studio system, which maybe we can get into later. But I think what was going on at the time is they had like a package, which is like, hey, we've got, you know, it's this IP, uh, it's this showrunner attached, Fincher's directing, it's this actor. Uh, let's see which studios or networks or whatever want to come on board. And so I think what then at that point Netflix did is they're like, okay, well, here are the data points that we have about this thing. Oh, look, this actually aligns perfectly with this sort of like algorithmic output that we're getting. Okay, this is like worth the risk. I, th- I think that is the the story, but I might be misremembering that. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can you can continue. I mean, I guess people get the point. I don't want to make you over explain it. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's created by data. And I wonder how many more shows they kind of created by, um, you know, algorithm as I mean, down to the casting. I thought that's very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's worth pointing out, and like, again, I always like I have to say this, which is like, one, don't invest on any of the things that I'm saying. And two, I don't have like proprietary information. Like I work on one show in this massive, um, this massive company and like hopefully it gets picked up. But right now it's just uh, season 1A and season 1B. Um, but uh, one thing to keep in mind is like, you know, I worked before this at companies that were like, um, they were half owned by like Snapchat. And that was much, the content was much more informed because of the social media based on sort of like algorithms in real time. And we were like morphing things down to the millisecond. And in something like Netflix, I get the impression that what they're kind of doing is they're using a lot of that algorithmic data to decide things like what shows are going to be made or not made unless like, well, we're now going to sort of like morph this content once it's sort of greenlit. So like, whatever sort of like Gandalf beard is on top of an orbit Netflix. It's like, it's making that decision at the very beginning. And there's a lot of other sort of like contextual things going into it. And then I think where the sort of like traditional techie AB testing comes in is like, you know, when you look at those thumbnails that are being served to you at Netflix, it's like, they're not the same for everybody because they kind of know your patterns and they know your profile and, or like what's being served to you after you're done watching a piece of content. Like, I think that's really where the sort of, the tech is coming in and sometimes it gets a little overstated, like how much influence any algorithm has on the, on making the content itself. Um, now there's probably a bigger discussion to be had about how a culture that only watches things via streaming then creates, you know, more cultural outputs. It's like, you're kind of informed by the things you're watching on these streaming services. So obviously the creative is going to be shaped by that, but it's a little less granular, granular than I think sometimes gets reported. And, I um, stopped you to expand on the craziness of the uh, Kevin Spacey casting and the construction of the whole House of Cards show in general and how it was cynically all done by data. But do you remember where you were going? I want to make sure you continue to point that you were uh, building toward when you were brought it up in the first place. Oh, right. So essentially, you know, in the, in the timeline, what we're looking at is like Netflix all of a sudden has all of these subscribers and now they're owning the content. So if you think about it, like, I, the the grocery store metaphor would be like previously they were Costco they were like selling other people's like hand me downs that they didn't think had like that much value and then all of a sudden they're like now we're Trader Joe's and we're making our own shit and very good metaphor basically what that did thank you I you know I occasionally have them uh, and I think what ended up happening is that entire traditional model which you know if you couple what was going on at that period of time it's like linear tv was was always in decline like there used to be these articles where people were always hemming and hawing about the decline of like the cable package and up until very recently like now that it's sort of like there's been a period on that discussion but there was a question mark all the way through about like well are the cable companies sort of going to survive and like i have 
uh, a cable package because my landlord, for whatever reason, just like it came with my apartment. Uh, and you can already see they're already like they, they have no interest in really maintaining the infrastructure, the contents all over the place. So that's kind of been decided. But what happened in the transition period was you had companies like Disney buying, you know, streaming technology services like BAM, which I think was the MLB's streaming service. Um, or at least like the underlying tech product. And they're like, okay, we need to ramp up now and figure out how to do this because basically if we don't evolve, we're all just going to be essentially production companies providing content to Netflix. Like we need a way to go straight to consumer. And what had happened previously is the ties between production distribution had always been severed, intentionally so, um, especially when it came to, you know, if you're Disney and you were trying to put a movie out in theaters, there were laws preventing Disney from owning those movie theaters. Um, so they couldn't kind of do predatory pricing and they couldn't, they couldn't dominate. But in this new version of, of Hollywood, if you're making the, the content and you want to distribute that content, there is no law severing that. And so it allows you to be this kind of crazy vertically integrated company on top of which it's all built over the internet. So there's no need for physical distribution. So like the profit margins can actually be kind of crazy. And so what ended up happening is Disney plus um, Hulu, which wasn't originally fully owned by Disney, these streaming services, uh, they started pulling their stuff off Netflix and basically using it as inventory for their own streaming platforms. And you see a company like Peacock, which is like relatively late to the game, doing the same thing. And what they're realizing is once this is all said and done, there's probably only going to be four or five of these services that are like actually the kind that you're sort of like paying in the way that you would pay for a traditional like cable bundle. And they want to be in that conversation. So, you know, to go back to the list before, it's like, I think Netflix has first mover advantage. I think they're going to be okay, even if they're sort of like debt financing their way to the top right now. Yeah, and um, Netflix has kind of become a staple. Like everything else is a choice, but Netflix is like, people look at you like weird if you don't have Netflix. Like Netflix has kind of become um, as, I try, I'm not good at with the analogy right well, now. Well, I was thinking about this. It's like, it's it's the way that you, when you swat tissue paper, you say uh, Kleenex. Yes. It's like, oh, I'm going to Netflix this, even if you're not going on Netflix. And or, so or zero, it's that yeah, first or advantage. Uh, every copier is Xerox. Every diaper is Pampers. Like Netflix is like that. Like Netflix is the base streaming thing that everybody has. And then, you know, everything else is like gravy. Exactly. And I think... When you look at the the other stuff, I think the companies that'll be okay is like Disney Plus has been crazy successful. I mean, it's not. I mean, it makes sense in a way. They own all of the biggest brands, and you know, when you think about something like Netflix, part of the reason why they have to spend all this money on content is when you buy a show from somebody else or a movie, you kind of know if it's a hit or not, right? But you don't know that if you're spending it on your own production. Like if if House of Cards had flopped, Netflix would have been in a lot of trouble. You have to do, you basically have to spend five to six X what you normally would to make enough stuff to find out what actually is going to stick. And on top of it all, they, they kind of have the ability to outspend other people, at least right now, because they have a bigger subscriber base. So you're basically spreading the money you're spending on shows across more people. So just like basic financial analysis, it sort of allows you to be a little bit riskier in that sense. And also you're hoping that maybe the bottom drops out from some of the other studios and you can get a little more competitive with the rates you're paying people, which is going to be a problem, I think, in the future. But when you look at a company like Disney, you know, they own Pixar, they own Lucasfilms, they own Marvel, obviously. And so you basically just have a collection of bangers and like it's stuff for kids where they'll watch it over and over and over again. So if you have a family or you're sort of like one of these increasingly sort of like infantilized adults, you're going to get Disney plus and you're going to have it because that's sort of like, that's the home 
base for where you go for the content for your kids. And you probably would have to pay for those DVDs or whatever, or like buy it on Amazon previously anyway. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks, or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.